It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own life. Beat it up and I've seen got no peace. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, the of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. The border trap is some the ground with that low plane flying and up for overflow, punching in the corner, too, but it'll lose the devil, save the devil, world, and you're only see your heart. Tell me the surrender in the river with the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it, it's pretty It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of, thankfully... Doom <laughs> and Bloom. That's right. Welcome to the very thankful Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour on Thanksgiving, an interval of interest in an insidious world. That's what we are. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Nurse Amy? Yes. I am, Who are you? <laughs> I'm Amy Alton, and I am also known as Nurse Amy. I am a certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And together we are the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair, the courageous couple, the spectacular spouses. <laughs> and we're here to help you keep it together even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a prurient possum, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship. Patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when someone gets hurt or injured, will you know what to do? Will you act or will you just be a bystander, a standing by bystander, just standing by? Well, <laughs> you probably should if you have more sense than a barrel full of bananas, demonstrate that you know what's going on by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and maybe a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I mean it. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster. And they're designed by, guess who? Nurse Amy, and indeed, this old guy right here you're <laughs> listening to. Compare our kits for contents, quality, cost with anybody else's stuff, please. And Or you could just ask anyone who's ever bought one. I'll take that way, too. Or go through American Survival Guide's latest gear recommendations. Well, you know what? We got a lot of different people that say that our kits 
are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us, and that's pretty obvious. So get in gear, dear, and reach out to the queen and the codger. It is so easy. (laughs) Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Contact us anytime by writing to us at drbones, that's B-O-N-E-S, podcast, what you're listening to, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at AOL.com. You can find us on Facebook at Doom and Bloom. You can also find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Uh, Look for us on Twitter, very simple, at Prepper Show. And let's see. Oh, we have a YouTube channel. That's right. At Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. With I think I have 175 videos now. Wow, that sounds good. We're, we're getting there. I think and we have another one coming up. I am putting another one up today, which is uh, November. What are we at? Twenty. 20- 5th? Yep. 24th, 25th. One of those days. 25th, <laughs> 25th, Saturday, 2017. Super Saturday. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine what the, Cyber mo- Monday, the Super malls Saturday, look like Black today? Friday. Oh, yeah. <gasps> Must be crazy, oh. baby. Although, really. Everyone stay home and drink hot chocolate. And buy all your stuff online. That's the way it is. Just go. You can go to our place and buy, her, buy our stuff online, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, last week we talked about first and second degree burns, but there are some where the damage goes deeper than just your epidermis, the superficial layer of the skin you're looking at, uh, or the layer right underneath it that's part of the skin, uh, by w- which, by the way, is the biggest organ in your body. And that's called the dermis. And when they go through those two layers and go all the way through and go into other tissue, that's called a third-degree burn. Third-degree burns penetrate not only the full thickness of the skin, but they can go into fat, they can go into muscle, it can go into bone and destroy a lot of tissue. Third-degree burns have a different appearances based on what caused it. They could look charred, they could be uh, white in color, they could be uh, dry, they could look wet. I mean, it just all depends on the type of damage that has occurred. These burns actually appear indented if you've lost a lot of tissue. So there are electrical burns, there are scald burns, there are all sorts of different kinds of burns. So this is something that you have to take into account with third degree burns. Uh, now the problem with third degree burns is that your skin is the, well, it is your Protection. armor, right? It Protection. is your suit of armor. If you have a crack in your suit of armor or a chink in your suit of armor, well, you know what's going to happen to you is bacteria and all sorts of stuff that's not supposed to, that may, may be actually okay on your skin, but not inside your body, they're going to go ahead and flood into there, and what's going to happen is you're going to get some really crazy infections. Also, see, the skin keeps the fluids in your body in, so you will lose a lot of fluids and become severely dehydrated very, very fast, so a lot of different issues that are very complex with regards to skin, plus in the healing process, where are you going to get more skin to cover up the area where you lost your skin? You can grow, you don't grow back much skin, you know, so you exactly. need things like skin grafts and all sorts of stuff. What happens is, you know, the body tries to heal itself, so it's just going to form a lot of scar tissue. And if you need mobility right. in that area, you know, scar tissue is okay if it's, say, on your forearm, right? you know, a, a small amount. But if you're talking about an elbow or a knee or your hands, I mean, there are just certain areas where that skin needs to be stretchy. And scar tissue doesn't give you that mobility. It reminds me of a friend of mine who 
was a resident at Jackson Memorial Hospital with me, and he had he he had a terrible third degree burn. Spent months in the hospital when he was a teenager because he was he was a surfer, and yes. he was cleaning his board with kerosene, which apparently was a thing back then, and uh, somehow somebody was smoking nearby or something like that, and indeed ignited his entire garage and with him in it. And he could not, His I remember his right arm, he could not fully extend it, and that was because of scar tissue at the elbow. So this is pretty serious stuff. It is really serious. And he's lucky he survived. He showed me his burn. He's uh, He was also um, a doctor here in South Florida. Remember, yes. I went to see him yes. once, and he showed it to me. It was it was really crazy. Yeah, but you know what terrible. he did? He just moved on. Right. And he went, had a great went attitude. To school. Yep. He he went to medical school. He became a doctor, and he continued to surf. Right. He and was... you know what? A body is just a, a shell for us. You know, we're really the people that are on the inside. That's right. He not had the a, outside. Well, he had a lot of intestinal fortitude, and I certainly good admire for, I him. I know. He was, he was a good guy. Well, when a person gets burned, you know what? It's really important to, well, remove them from the heat source, of course, but you also need to run cool water over really any degree of burn, first, second, or third, for a period of time as soon as possible after the injury. Uh, Cool water is preferable to ice, however, because skin, the skin is traumatized and ice will be more traumatic to already damaged tissue than just cool water. Uh, it's very important also to remove rings, jewelry, bracelets, things like that. Swelling is something you really commonly see in these kinds of injuries. Now, the skin no longer exists in these burns, so infection is very likely. It's not just dehydration, it's, and it is infection as well. And so you need to cover the wound to try to form some kind of barrier from microbes for microbes to not be able to get in. Uh, there is something called Spenko Second Skin. That's an option as a burn wound cover. Sealox uh, Combat Gauze, you know, we've talked about that as a type of blood clotting agent. We've talked about that a lot in our active series, uh, active shooter series. And that could serve as a burn dressing as well. What you need to do is to wet it, and so it becomes this sort of slimy dressing. You wrap it around uh, the burn area, and it serves as a protectant. Now, you can't wrap it very tightly. That's something that's very important. But It's very cooling, too. We've used it for a burn dressing for me. Right, and it's very, very... It, it, feels, it, it almost feels like you're putting a, a cool compress on. Exactly. Not cold, but, you know, it's... It's just soothing. that cool gel. Yeah, yeah, it is soothing. Celox isn't affected, by the way, by whether you have blood clotting factors in your system or not. So, Or if you take blood thinners. Right. It still works as well as it does for people who don't take it. So I think that's a slight advantage. That's right. Another common treatment for burns, especially significant burns, are things like silvadine. Silvadine is a combination of silver and an antibiotic called sulfadiazine, and that is helpful in preventing infections in even people that have third-degree burns. Now, it's I have to say that if you have more than a certain percentage of your body, maybe about 10% of your body, that's covered with third-degree burns, well, your chances of survival really drop without major help. And when I say major help, I'm talking about ICU burn unit kind of help, high-technology kind of help, and 
those kind of folks, people who have these kinds of injuries in a survival setting, well, you know what? They are going to have a more difficult time surviving than in normal times. So, as a matter of fact, I would say that any burn that's more than a an inch or two in diameter probably would require a skin a skin graft to heal completely. And absolutely, it's, it's just it's just too much work mess. for the body to have to fill in that deeply. It's the shallower wounds that you know still take a long time, especially depending on your age. I mean, I'm finding every year that things just heal just a little bit slower. It's crazy. I never thought that would be something that That's I would true. have to deal with. Well, the the older folks and younger and very young uh, children, these are the ones that have the worst outcomes. If you're a strong, healthy adult, uh, young adult. Well, young you know, adults. That's, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> Under the age of 45, I'd say after 45, you just notice cuts, you know, and scrapes just hang out a little bit longer yeah, than especially, they did before. Especially maybe at the ends of your extremities. Like if you look at your lower legs, you might have less hair. You might uh, notice skin changes there as uh, right. occur before anywhere else in your body. So You really want to avoid cuts and, and burns. Right. That's why I don't shave my legs in the winter. Me neither. Too bad. <laughs> I only shave them in the summer. You <laughs> know what? If, if you can't live with a little bit of hair on my legs, then, you know, tough, tough yeah. tooties And there, same buddy. thing with you. <laughs> I live with a lot of hair on your legs. <laughs> You're my fuzzy bear. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about alternative burn treatments. I mean, you are the medic. It's... Uh, a survival scenario, you're off the grid, so what do you do? Now, well, there are indeed various plants and other substances that may have properties that could help you help a burn to heal, even if no modern supplies are necessary. So let's talk a little bit about those. Now, of course, they work better for first and second degree burns rather than third, but worth a shot, right? Well, uh, one of the most popular of these is aloe vera, and studies have shown that aloe vera helps new skin cells form and speeds healing, and it's an excellent option for especially first and secondary burns. So what you do is you take an aloe leaf, you cut it open, either scoop out the gel or rub the open leaf directly on the burned area. It's pretty simple. And you reapply that on a regular basis several times a day, four to six times a day maybe. And the simplicity of this and the, the fact that aloe vera grows in a bunch of different climates. We have it down here in South Florida where it's very humid. You would think it's like a desert kind of plant. But we've had people we have tell lots us, of rain here. Well, and we've had lots of people tell us that they have aloe plants in strange, crazy places, strange locations that I never thought that an aloe would survive. So it's a hardier plant than you think. And when we have been planting medicinal um, plants <laughs> in our garden and around our house, uh, basically, it's if it survives, great. If it doesn't. Sorry, it's just not something that's going to grow around. But we have things that do grow that I'm kind of surprised about. So you can try it. You right. never know. Well, you would, like I said, you would think aloe vera needs a dry climate. We're not dry here, certainly. Not in the and least. And our aloe vera grows just, just fine. Just fine, right. Absolutely. Now, there are many articles on burn remedies that include things like vinegar. Vinegar, just about any type seems to work as an astringent. It's an antiseptic. It helps to prevent infections. It is very cooling, and it does. It sounds 
like the opposite thing of what you would want to put on a burn. But it is really soothing. You make a compress. If you take, uh, you could do a 50-50 or you could do 25% vinegar. It doesn't have to be terribly strong. But just in a bowl of water. And then, you know, put a washcloth in there or some cold cotton or some 4x4 gauzes and apply compresses. Just very soothing. If you have the ability to have a bath, you could put a goodly amount of vinegar in. I'm not going to tell you exactly how much because I don't know how big your bathtub is. Um, don't make the water too hot. Make it warm and put the vinegar in and get in there and soak and stay in there. As the water cools off, you will feel so much better if you have, say, you know, your legs got burned or your back got burned. Uh, it is just really, really soothing. Right. If you only have the ability to have compresses, don't have a bath, make the vinegar a 50-50 solution with water. Right. And cover the burn completely and re-soak the compresses uh, when they start to feel warm. It's incredible how and, it cools it right. off. And there's no limit Seriously. to how often you can apply vinegar soak, so that's that's fine. Now, you, uh, with the vinegar, I just want a, a vinegar bath that you're talking about. I want to make sure that people say start with tepid water. Exactly. That's and, what I'm saying. Not right. too hot. Exactly. That's important. Exactly. Now, if uh, the, the burn is on the torso, you just have a little bit of water. You could take a cotton T-shirt and soak it in vinegar, and that may give you some relief as well. That's I've <laughs> gone to sleep many times with that when I lived. Well, I've been down here in South Florida, but when we went out boating or skiing or yep. hiking or camping, yeah, you know, <laughs> all the outdoor things that we we did yeah, for fun. Uh, <laughs> well, there you go. And, and In so, the hot summer sun. <laughs> and something similar is uh, that's good for cooling off is a witch hazel compress. I mean, you use the uh, extract of the bark, which decreases inflammation. It certainly soothes a first-degree first burn really well. You would soak a cloth in full-strength witch hazel, apply it right to the burned area, and reapply as frequently as you need to. That's now, the next chair I want to buy, by the way. Okay. Hey, oh, yeah. Hey, witch hazel. That would be yeah. awesome. I'd love that. Uh, elderflower comfrey leaf uh, decoctions, as they say, um, are an excellent remedy for burns as well. If you have never heard of the word decoction, it's an extraction of the crushed herbs produced by boiling. And so using uh, lower water temperatures, that makes a tea if you use boiling water then uh, and extract the crushed herbs uh, that extract is called decoction now the decoctions of these plants can be used for compresses it can be uh, applied directly to the burned area with a, a gauze cover that's called a poultice that's so here are some of these old-timey terms that you probably haven't heard for a long time and these are Crushed up. Ways that you can actually put together herbs so that they can actually give you some healing effect. Uh, Black tea leaves, they have tannic acid that helps draw heat from a burn. You put two or three tea bags in cold water, cool water rather, for a few minutes. Use the water with compresses or just apply that to the burned area. If your patient has to be mobile, well, you make a stay-in-place poultice out of two or three wet tea bags and simply place the cool, wet tea bags right on the burn and wrap them with a piece of gauze or some tape to hold them in place. Uh, people have also used milk or, and yogurt. Uh, they help cool and hydrate the skin after a burn. You wrap some um, whole milk or full-fat yogurt uh, in gauze or cheesecloth cloth, uh, and 
you know, soak it up real good, use that as a compress, that would be uh, worthwhile. These compresses usually remove as they become warm themselves. And then, of course, there's the baking soda bath. Take a quarter of a cup of baking soda, add that to a, a warm bath, and soak for at least 15 minutes uh, or at least until the water cools off. Right. So there are some that are very useful. Now, there are some essential oils that can be used on first or second degree burns. Not all of them can, um, but uh, lavender oil is one of them. And uh, it what you do is you mix lavender or tea tree oil, that's another one, uh, that will help with pain due to stinging from the burn and maybe promote tissue healing. This is something you would apply over the burned area in a dilute form uh, and very thinly. Uh, loose covering of gauze maybe over that may be helpful for second degree burns. Absolutely. Now, although those oils may be helpful because in dilute form, other real fats like butter or lard, which is commonly uh, in the past used for, was commonly used for burns in the past, they actually hold in the heat and so they are not to be used in the treatment of burns. So it's something that's important for you to realize. Now, uh, you can also make a poultice of calendula. calendula. Is that, I'm, I had never pronounced that right. I know, calendula. Calendula. Uh, and that's, I might as well just say marigold petals. <laughs> and, you know, and, and pound them with uh, some wheat germ oil or olive oil and then spread that lightly over the burned area. That's also helpful. There are so many different, wow, so many different. There really are. Natural burn remedies, but one of the best ones. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I found something very interesting in uh, one of these thousand Christmas gift catalogs that uh-huh. came to the house. What's that company? Hammer. Hammer Schlemmer. Schlemmer. Hammer Schlemmer. <laughs> I call it Hammer Schlemmer. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what is you Hammer Schlemmer? What is Hammer Schlemmer? They have a little miniature copper distiller. Oh. Did you see it? Yeah, it's very cool. We have one of those, but I don't I don't think we got it from this place. Now, I got to tell you though, distilling your own essential oil I'm doing- is a heck of a job. You know, you got a you got an acre of lavender, you get about a ga- I don't know, 12 gallons or something like that of oil in total. Of course, that is a lot of oil if you realize how much you use, but you don't get I, I mean, it takes a lot of that stuff to make anything. So I just don't know if these little distilleries are of much use. I was not mentioning it as a prepper. (laughs) Oh, just as a cute cute thing? I was mentioning as something very cute that if you wanted to, you know, do tiny little experiments Uh, with certain herbal leaves. I mean, it's it's small. You weren't going to get more than a drop of anything. So that's it, ladies just and gentlemen. You want to listen to the cutest podcast in town? Just listen it's to the a Doom and Bloom Survival Miniature Copper Medicine Distiller. Hour. It's it's very cute. So cute. Oh. I remember using mine. Yes, I'm... we got Malaluca leaves, which is tea tree. Yes, I remember. Because we have Malalukas everywhere. everywhere around here. Everywhere, invasive species. Everywhere, everywhere around here. But they do have tea tree oil that you can get out of them. So that's something. We ended up with a couple drops of tea tree oil. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. It wasn't folks. easy. Wasn't Buy easy. your oils now. Right. <laughs> Before. Believe me yes. when I tell you. <laughs> yeah, I think people really will probably be most, will be using 
teas more than anything else because they're simpler to make. They, a lot of time you can just take the leaves off the uh, plants or you, maybe you have to dry them for a while, things like that. But teas are probably a lot easier. That's why we included a chapter on teas in our um, third edition so much of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The well, Essential Guide. Well, after we used that little distiller, I thought, oh, my gosh. Well, I wasn't going to invest in a big, giant one. No. Nope. They are very expensive. No. Nope. You're talking about a lot of copper there. But it was it was fun to to realize how much work that these manufacturers of these oils um, small batch. I like Mountain Rose herbs, folks. By the way, if you're thinking about getting some oils, they do make them small batch. It's family owned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a group of really nice hippie herbalists, Birkenstock wearing. They are totally into their herbal medicine, and they want organic. So they're real careful about what they choose and how they process it. So you know you're getting high quality. And I don't work for them. I just have met them when we've gone to some Mother Earth shows. And right. they're amazing people. Well, small I business. have something. Well, speaking of small business, uh, most of the small businesses. We're a small business. <laughs> I, uh, there is a type of small business that makes another useful burn remedy, and that is honey. Uh, one of the best yes. remedies for treating the natural remedies or treating the burn patient is raw, unprocessed honey. Uh, you should always use it in its raw and processed state because of it. it has more antibacterial activity and it also has hydrating properties. And so this is a pretty impressive germ-killing effect and it's thought to be due to a type of pH, an acidic pH that's just not hap- bacteria are just not happy with. Raw honey per- helps prevent, even treat infections in a lot of wounds. It can be used in first, second, and if no other medical option is available, well, you know, a... Uh, Third degree burns. This is how to use honey. Um, you gotta in the first fifteen minutes, you know, the cooling down that you're doing by adding uh, water, uh, running cool cool water on that. Once you do that, apply a generous amount of honey in a thick layer all over the burned area. Cover the honey with plastic wrap or waterproof dressings, and you can use tape to hold the dressing in place. But do not wrap it all the way around. Uh, don't use cling wrap, or at least don't wrap in a tight way because swelling that's right. going to occur from the burn can cause Loose. undue pressure. Sure. And so especially if you use that saran wrap or, and if you wrapped it all the way around tightly around the arm, it could cause a great deal of discomfort or even affect whatever circulation happens to be left uh, in the area of the wound. Now, if the dressing begins to fill up with fluid oozing out of the wound, then change the dressing. So you may have to change that Pretty often, the, actually, truthfully, the worse the burn, the more frequently dressings are going to have to be changed. The, don't remove or wash off the honey uh, for the first two or three weeks. Uh, it, add more honey often. Fill up the deeper layers as you need to. And always have a thick layer of honey just over the edges of the wound to avoid any air getting to the burned skin. So you're, you're causing, remember, air has bacteria, and so you're trying to prevent as much as possible there being contamination of the burn wound. So if you have complete coverage of the area, then it's going to help decrease the infection rate. And at least you need to change the dressing about three times a day. Dealing with burns, I'll tell you, are it's really challenging for not only you, the caregiver, but it's challenging for the patient as well. It's very painful to deal with a lot of these burn issues and if You can, if at all possible, make sure you keep people away from situations where they might be burned. 
So let's see. Yes. How are you doing there? I'm doing great. I'm actually doing CEUs. CEUs are continuing educational units, right? Herbal medicines, an evidence-based review. (laughs) Oh, perfect. All right, well, we'll find out what they have to say. Probably they're not so... Not so into it, but it is... Uh, Actually, it's, it's... They're okay with it? Good. I'm yeah, so glad they're not. getting their act together with regards to yeah, that. Yeah, and they acknowledge that a lot of drugs have come from natural products. Well, of they course, they have to. They mentioned aspirin, digitalis, uh-huh. morphine, most antibiotics and anti-cancer drugs. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's actually pretty positive. But what it really talks about which makes sense to me is that there's a fear from the public to disclose that they right herbal supplements remedies use, they're using remedies right to their doctor because they automatically assume that the doctor's going to think they're nuts right and ridicule them yeah and tell them oh why are you doing that there's no scientific proof well i'll say that in some cases it's actually true i don't know about oh yeah doctors that are just (laughs) coming out of medical school situations (laughs) well it depends on what you've been doing you know right i mean you've been chanting and and running around a totem pole thinking it's going to heal your broken foot he he may say there's a problem there of conventionally trained medical professionals like you and I, I mean, it's sort of rare to have a couple that are integrated in their philosophy with regards to both natural and conventional medicine. So it is. But there's a significant portion of people who are using it. Of course. One thing. A lot of our audience and a lot and us. (laughs) I know. But this goes back to 2012. And also, this is also something that people had to admit. Not everyone admits to they're the truth. You know, think about these po- political polls. Well, oh boy. Nobody thought Trump was going to win because every time they did the polls, everyone said, oh, yeah, I'm voting for Hillary. And then, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, in 2012, more than three out of 10 adults, which is 33.2, in the United States used, they call it complementary medicine. Ah. Is what they're calling it here. Um, complementary so, medicine approaches, so CMAs. I used to use complementary medicine all the time. Every time I saw a patient, I said, hey, you look great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's complementary medicine. It's true. It's true. And 17.7% use natural products other than vitamin and mineral supplements. In Canada, an estimated 18% of the population takes natural products other than vitamin and mineral supplements. In other words... They're not counting taking a vitamin C as you know taking as a natural right, thing, yeah. right? That they so they said anything other than that. So that's very interesting. Well, good, good portion of the country. I think it's growing. I really do. Right, and it, I don't know why they wouldn't consider taking vitamin C as a complementary medicine because well, I guess I mean I it's an know. antioxidant. It's What's the true. difference between? Between taking that and taking glutamine or I guess, other kinds of things. You know what? Because so many people CoQ10. Do, do take vitamins and, and those kind of supplements that they would end up with 100%. So they wanted to remove something that's been taken for years and is just really commonly accepted. So they're looking at the trend, you They wanted you're saying. to look for everything other than that, right? Okay. 
All right. Well, let's talk so a little. I'm writing some interesting things. I, I'm so glad. <laughs> I hope you will chime in here. I will share. All right. Share. Yeah, because yes. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Wait. I have to say one thing. Okay. The cam the... includes a wide. Right. We're just talking about complimentary. Yeah. I guess they've, they've moved the A around. Cam includes a wide range of products, including natural health products and practices such as prayer. Oh, wow. Chiropractic, homeopathy, and massage therapy. Wow, and this is They're including in, prayer. And this in is this. in a conventional medicine continuing education unit. Yep. Wow, very cool. It is. All right, well, that's that's really interesting. You know what? Let's talk about something else now. In the typical zombie apocalypse movie or TV show, that if you've been watching The Walking Dead or something like that, you probably see a lot of gunshot wounds, broken bones, all sorts of terrible things, uh, knife wounds and stuff like that. But off the grid, you know, minor conditions are probably going to be the major detriment to the performance of a lot of activities of daily survival. And one of these is the ingrown toenail, and that's also known as Onychocryptosis. Wow. Well, you probably have never heard of that before. You probably heard of ingrown toenails, but not onychocryptosis. Well, I have a cure. You have a cure what? Cut it off. Cut your toe off. All right. Okay. No, cut the nail. Oh, cut the nail off. Okay. <laughs> cut your foot off. Cut your leg off. No, there are some people that just, like people I know, that just have a nail that grows in the wrong direction. As it's growing up, it grows sideways, too. My dad has this problem. All right. Well, you just yes. went to the very end of my article. I'm just of my, saying. Of my talk here. I'm just saying. But yes, you're right. <laughs> that is something that is what you would do if you have no other choice. But I'm. <laughs> but before we go to the very end of this talk, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about <laughs> generally about this kind of situation. So. Uh, you guys out there, you're a bunch of rugged individualists, I'm sure, probably think the toenail problems are no big deal. And, of course, that's until you have one. And if you have a major ingrown toenail... You just say ouch. Ouch is right. You, you know, when you have to be at 110% efficiency just to survive, you don't want to have to be in pain every time you take a step, right? So in the worst scenarios, you got to realize that ingrown toenails are just the beginning. You can start having... Skin ulcers, you can have blood infections, also known as septicemia. You could lose circulation to an area that's known as gangrene. And that, of course, you know, happens more often on the very tips of your extremities, fingers and toes. So this is something that's an issue. Now, you may not know what toenails are made of. They are made of a protein called keratin or alpha keratin. And it's a substance that forms claws in animals and also the covering of hooves and horns. And when we refer to issues that involve nails, it is called ungual. That's medical speak. If you ever hear somebody say, I got an ungual infection, that means I got an infected toe. And it comes from the Latin word for claw, which is unguis. The nail consists of a, d a number of different parts, and they inc that includes the nail plate, which is a hard covering of the end of your finger and toe, what you consider to be the nail. Uh, the nail bed, though, is the skin directly underneath the nail plate, and it's made up of skin, dermis, and epidermis, just like the rest of your skin. And the superficial epidermis actually moves along with the nail plate as it grows. And you may actually notice, if, if you're an older person, you may notice that there are some vertical grooves 
on your nails. And what these do is they attach your skin, the superficial layer of the skin, the epidermis, to the deep dermis as the nail grows. And in older people, you can actually see these grooves pretty easily or, in, or maybe in young people if you look closely enough. And in this nail bed, you have all sorts of blood vessels and nerves, you know, just like you have in your skin. You have uh, all, all the things other than hair, I guess, that run through the nail bed. Now, then you have the matrix. The nail matrix, sometimes called the germinal matrix, is the root at the base of the nail, the portion of, that's under the, under the cuticle, the skin that surrounds the uh, base of the nail and, and the sides. And, and that produces, the matrix produces the new cells for the nail plate, for what actually looks like the nail. You can see a portion of the matrix if you look at your, uh, at your nails in the half-moon-looking thing that is right at the very base of it, and that's, it's lighter than the rest of your nail, and it's called the lunula. So you'll see that right at the base of the nail plate, and it's the lunula that actually determines the shape and the thickness of the nail. If you have a curved matrix, it produces a curved nail. If you had a flat matrix, it produces a flat nail. So my matrix I'm looking here is sort of curved, so I have a, uh, a, a curve to my nail. Now, an ingrown toenail occurs when the edge of the nail grows downward and into the skin of the toe, and that occurs for a lot of different reason, reasons, but poorly fitting shoes, poorly trimmed toenails, those are the most common causes. Uh, usually, it's the big toe affected, but really any toenail can become ingrown. The skin along the edge of a toenail that's ingrown appears sort of red. It gets a little swollen. It could be painful. It will be painful, uh, and it could feel warm to the touch. And these are signs not only of pressure on the skin, but also the beginnings of infection. So if you don't treat it, the condition worsens, even leading to maybe accumulation of pus as a kind of uh, abscess-type formation. Let's talk about your shoes. Now, shoes that are either too tight or too loose can cause ingrown toenails. If they're too loose, it causes continuing pounding of your big toe against the inside because your foot is moving within the too-big shoe as you walk. Now, if you have shoes that are too small for your foot, and ladies, if you wear high heels, you may know what this is like. You have extra pressure that's placed on your toes, which prevents normal nail growth. So that's one big issue. And proper trimming is another. Nails that are not trimmed properly can can definitely cause ingrown toenails. And this happens when your toenails are trimmed too short or you cut your toenails in a rounded fashion instead of straight across. That's actually interesting that fingernails should be actually cut in a rounded fashion, uh, but not toenails. Toenails should be cut straight across. And the edges, if, if you don't cut them correctly, the edges of the nails will tend to curl downward and go right into the skin and cause you a lot of pain. Ow. That's right. Now, those are yeah, I <laughs> your sound effects. I know, and that and that hurts. Now, these issues, you know, wearing bad shoes, uh, poorly fitting shoes, and improperly trimming nails, like you can fix those. You can buy shoes that actually fit you, or, or you can decide you're going to cut your nails appropriately. But there are some less avoidable factors that cause ingrown toenails. Heredity is part of it. Uh, injuries that occur medical conditions. Some of these can cause ingrown toenails. Some people are born with nails that are curved and tend to naturally curve inward. Those people are going to have a lot of ingrown toenails. And injuries to the nail bed, if you whack your 
toe with a hammer for some reason and it, and it damaged your nail matrix, it, it can cause ingrown toenails. Because the germinal matrix, if it is normal, it will grow normal nails. If your germinal matrix is curved inward or damaged in some way, it could cause new cells that are not normal and are deformed in some way and can grow right into the skin. People with uh, diabetes uh, or other illnesses that cause poor circulation, that's an issue as well. They are at high risk. A diabetic can experience nerve damage, not even realize that there is excessive pressure being applied to the toes by badly fitting shoes and or may, may not even notice that the nail is growing into the skin. Of course, in normal times, you got podiatrists, you got orthopedic specialists that you can visit to deal with the problem. But off the grid, you got to deal with it by yourself. And so here's some tips on how to treat an ingrown nail. You soak the foot in warm water with Epsom salts. That's something really good for an ingrown toenail to soften things up maybe three to four times a day. Uh, in between soaks, you want to keep the toe dry, though. Uh, you use an antiseptic to decrease the bacterial count in the area so that you don't have a cellulitis or an infection in the soft tissue around the nail. Uh, you want to place maybe a small piece of moist cotton or dental floss or even maybe a little piece of a toothpick under the nail and to, to get it away from the skin. And sometimes that may help it grow away from the skin. And of course, you don't want to wear tight-fitting shoes. You want to maybe consider wearing sandals on this toe, uh, this damaged toe, until you feel better. Now, at some point or, or another, however, you may have no choice but to intervene more aggressively. And in these circumstances, you may have to, as Amy mentioned, remove the offending segment of nail. So in that case, what you need to do is take the ingrown curved side of the nail, then uh, you're going to go ahead and try to numb the area as best you can, and you're going to cut about one-fifth of the nail plate width. Not, not the length, like the part that you cut when you're cutting your nails, but the width so that you can get out all of the curved area. Right, the part that's under the skin. You might have to cut all the way down to the base of the nail in some cases, and this is basically what you have to do when the nail matrix is abnormal and just curves so much that even the base of the nail grows out curved and digs into the skin. So this procedure, by the way, is a lot more easily done after injecting some numbing medicine into the area. It is painful to have it dealt with. Now, I will say that if you have lidocaine, that's great, but avoid lidocaine with epinephrine. The epinephrine causes the circulation in fingers, for example, and toes to be compromised. That could lead to gangrene due to loss of circulation. So it's something that's important to know. Uh, if the toe's infected, antibiotics are important. Maybe triple antibiotic ointment is helpful in general. But oral antibiotics like Keflex, Fishflex, uh, Clindamycin or Fishsin or Amoxicillin, Fishmoxforte, these may be necessary. And for more information about antibiotics in general, well, we'll talk about that in future shows. And we've talked about it, of course, in past shows as well. Now, if there's a portion of the nail that's cut off, patience is going to be required because it's going to take months for the nail to regrow. So that, if you have a genetic tendency towards ingrown toenails, be prepared to deal with recurrences. They are things that occur from time to time. But I'll tell you, if, if you can, wear your shoes that fit you, wear properly fitted shoes 
uh, shoes that protect the toes. So, you know, you want to, in general, unless you happen to already have an ingrown toenail, you'd like to have shoes that do protect the toes. Um, you got to manage your medical conditions, make sure that you have good circulation, don't develop diabetic issues with regards to circulation. And uh, if you're older, make sure you also keep things clean uh, in, in your lower extremities and make sure you teach appropriate foot grooming methods to your kids so that they know from a very early age what the appropriate way is to actually trim your toenails. So this is something that we find very, very unusual, unusual to find a kid that knows exactly how to do things just right. Most of these kids, uh, if, if they cut their toenails at all, they don't cut them the right way. So make sure we, we got to instill a culture of medical preparedness. And part of that is making sure that grooming is appropriate, that good hygiene is appropriate, hand washing, respiratory hygiene, all these things are followed. If we could do that, then we'll have better luck keeping healthy in times of trouble. Oh, I just want to mention that we're going to be in Jacksonville, Florida, on the weekend of December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. On Friday and Saturday, December 1st and 2nd, we're going to be at the NPS Expo. We're going to be speaking there. We'll be doing um, our booth where you can see all of our different medical kits and other kinds of supplies. If you need to fill some holes in your medical supplies, feel free to come down there and say hi uh, or just come and say hi anyhow. We're always happy to to meet our listeners and our viewers. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy happy to see you. So the NPS Expo in Jacksonville, Florida, you can just go to, I guess, NPSExpo.com and you'll find the uh, website. Also, on Sunday, the day after the Expo, we're doing a private class for just uh, a total of up to 16 people, and that is going to be an eight-hour class at the, what's the name of the place <laughs> i just printed it out yesterday i think it's a hampton inn it's a hampton inn, hampton inn, in, inn in jacksonville a hampton inn in jacksonville yeah. just go to the class go to the website at doomandbloom.net go to the classes page and it has all the information there and it's going to be an eight-hour class where we're going to be talking about uh, how to do a history and physical how to identify some medical issues like pneumonia so you teach you how to recognize lung sounds on stethoscope Make sure you know how to do blood pressures manually and make sure that you know how to stop hemorrhage, how to deal with mass casualty situations, uh, burns, and my gosh, just about everything. Penetrating wounds, hemorrhage control, and we're going to be teaching you how to use various, I mean, doing a lot of hands-on stuff. We'll be doing tourniquets. We'll be doing Israeli bandages, teaching you how to use those. We'll be doing suturing and stapling. We'll have a, it's a whole day. How do you use SAM splints? How do you use SAM splints? It's going to be intense. If you are really serious about learning how to Unless, be a caregiver in times of trouble. Did you mention that we also have this, the suturing and stapling class? Yes, I mentioned that. that. <laughs> yes, I mentioned that. So it's a whole, Sam, big, on your... whole big thing. And also you get... <laughs> And you get some of these materials to take home with you as well. So I it's hear a, your voice, but not always what you say. Okay, How's well, that? <laughs> well, isn't that nice? 
I love you. That's not complimentary medicine. I don't feel complimented. Hey, I'm trying there. to study here. All right. Well, in any case, in any case, what I want you guys out there to do is to just go to the main page of the website at doomandbloom.net, click the button that says classes on the top of the main toolbar, and check that out. And if it's something that you're interested in, I think we have three or four spots left, or and uh, we will fill them. Believe me, and it's it's going to be maybe a total of 16 people. So it, it's really a semi-private class and something that you will come away knowing stuff that you didn't know before. I wanted to say just a little bit before we go, we just have a couple of minutes left, that it's important to think about what the basic things are that will increase your chances of survival, especially from a medical standpoint. So let's assume a calamity has occurred, you've survived, power grid's down, going to be down for years probably, and you were a good prepper and prudently stored all these food uh, items and equipment to, you know, garden and uh, medical supplies and you're safe, you have a shelter and you're a fine strapping young individual, no medical issues, reasonably intelligent, and unfortunately you don't have the slightest idea what the first thing is that you should do to ensure your future future survival. I'm going to tell you what that is. And one of them is to not be a lone wolf. That is actually the very first way to help assure your medical well-being. And when I we talk at expos like the MPS Expo uh, this coming weekend and elsewhere, we show a picture of in one of our talks of something called the thylacine, sometimes called the Tasmanian tiger or a Tasmanian wolf. And people wonder why we use uh, choose a, a photo of that animal, which is a pretty forlorn-looking thing, uh, instead of a red wolf or gray wolf or a Siberian tiger, for that matter. And that's because the Tasmanian tiger or wolf is extinct. And if you try to go it alone in a long-term disaster, you're going to be too. Now, you have to realize that you've got to have a survival group, even if it's just your extended family. That's essential if you're going to have any hope of keeping it together when things fall apart. If you read, I mean, if you look at shows like Naked and Afraid or Alone or some of these other shows, survival-type shows, well, you can see that it's possible to survive, but it's a pretty miserable existence. So I have to just remind you guys there are going to be activities that are going to be pretty hard to imagine in in a a remote setting or in a survival setting. You're going to have to stand watch over your property. You're going to have to lug gallons of water from the nearest water source. You're going to have to chop wood for fuel or get some, figure out some other kind of fuel. Uh, You just have to think about what you actually have to do and take up, let's say, fill a gallon, one of those Home Depot buckets, five gallon buckets, fill it with water or some logs, maybe firewood, and walk 100 yards with it. No, thank you. After staying up all <laughs> night, standing outside your house. And you know what? You'll get, a, you'll get a feel, the feel about what you might have to go through on a daily basis. It's a miserable existence if you have to do all of it yourself. So not only is it just miserable, but it's going to negatively impact your health. It's going to decrease your chances for long-term survival. You're going to be exhausted and sleep-deprived. And you're going to be a very easy target for not only hostile forces, but bacteria as well. So your immune system weakens when you're exposed to long-term stress, and you're going to be at risk for illnesses that a well-rested individual could easily weather. And if you can only have enough people to divide labor and responsibility, that's going to make things more manageable. 
And this is much more possible if you have a group of like-minded individuals that help each other. And you can't possibly have all the skills needed to do well all by yourself. I mean, even if you're Daniel Boone, the truth of the matter is, is that he brought people with him that also had skills. So if, you know, I, I am a doctor, I can take you apart and put you back together, but I probably can't uh, do carpentry. I probably couldn't build a cabin very easily, or at least it would look like a mess. So <laughs> it would be pretty, oh, pretty funny looking cabin. I think we cabin. could figure it out. I think we could We've figure it out. We've seen a lot of cabins in Gatlinburg. That's right. That's right. Well, we do want to, we always we try. to remember some of them. Yeah, well, we always techniques. try to add some skills. We're master gardeners for our home state. We have a, a ham radio license. We've raised tilapias, food fish. So we have some skills, but, you know, we haven't raised livestock, for example, uh, nor have we ever been in charge of the security of other people. And there are those that have done these things, but could use some of the skills, medical skills that we possess. And if you can put enough people together with different skills, then you put together a village. You put even a village that's filled with people that'll help each other in a crisis, and that's what you need to have. There's no time like the present. I encourage you to communicate and network, put together a group of like-minded people. How many? Well, the right number will depend on your individual situation. The ideal group will have people with diverse skills, similar philosophies, and unless you're already in such a community, you might think it's impossible to find some, such a thing. But that isn't the case. Our good friend at, uh, Tom Martin at American Preppers Network or Tim French at Americans Networking to Survive. That's APN for Tom Martin or ANTS, A-N-T-S, for Tim French. Uh, or maybe even your local church. There are probably other people who feel just like you do. Start there, and you're gonna, I guarantee you're going to find people that share your concerns. That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones, Amy Alton, ARMP, also known as Nurse Amy. Thank you so much. And have a happy Thanksgiving weekend. Love you guys. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.